0: part 10 of a selection from strange stories from a chinese studio volume 1 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org a selection from strange stories from a chinese studio by pu Ling translated by herbert allen giles volume 1 part 10 Joining the Immortals read by David Barnes A Mr Zhou of Wandung had in his youth been fellow student with a Mr Chung, and a firm friendship was the result. The latter was poor and depended very much upon Mr Zhou, who was the elder of the two. He called Mr Zhou's wife his sister, and had the run of the house just as if he was one of the family. Now this wife, happening to die in childbed, Zhou married another named Wang, but as she was quite a young girl, Chung did not seek to be introduced. One day her younger brother came to visit her, and was being entertained in the inner apartments when Chung chanced to call. The servant announced his arrival, and Zhou bade him ask Mr. Chung in, but Chung would not enter and took his leave. Thereupon Zhou caused the entertainment to be moved into the public part of the house, and, sending after Chung, succeeded in bringing him back. They had hardly sat down before someone came in to say that a former servant of the establishment had been severely beaten at the magistrate's yamen, the facts of the case being that a cowboy of the Huang family, connected with the Board of Rights, had driven his cattle across the Zhou family's land, and that words had arisen between the two servants in consequence, upon which the Huang family's servant had complained to his master, who had seized the other and had sent him into the magistrates, where he had been bambooed. When Mr. Joel found out what the matter was, he was exceedingly angry, and said, "'How dares this pig-boy fellow behave thus? "'Why, only a generation ago his master was my father's servant,' he emerges a little from his obscurity and immediately thinks himself, I don't know what. Swelling with rage, he rose to go in quest of Huang. But Cheng held him back, saying, The age is corrupt. There is no distinction between right and wrong. Besides, the officials of the day are half of them thieves, and you will only get yourself in hot water. Zhou, however, would not listen to him, and it was only when tears were added to remonstrances that he consented to let the matter drop. But his anger did not cease, and he lay tossing and turning all night. In the morning he said to his family, "'I can stand the insults of Mr. Huang, but the magistrate is an officer of the government and not the servant of influential people.' If there is a case of any kind he should hear both plaintiff and defendant, and not act like a dog biting anybody he's set upon. I will bring an action against the cowboy, and see what the magistrate will do to him. As his family rather egged him on, he accordingly proceeded to the magistrates, and entered a formal plaint. But that functionary tore up his petition, and would have nothing to do with it. This roused Joel's anger, and he told the magistrate plainly what he thought of him, in return for which contempt of court he was at once seized and bound. During the forenoon, Mr. Chong called at his house, where he learnt that Joel had gone into the city to prosecute the cowboy, and immediately hurried after him with a view to stop proceedings. But his friend was already in the jail, and all he could do was to stamp his foot in anger. Now it happened that three pirates had just been caught, and the magistrate and Huang, putting their heads together, bribed these fellows to say that Joe was one of their gang, whereupon the higher authorities were petitioned to deprive him of his status as a graduate, and the magistrate then had him most unmercifully bambooed. Mr. Chung, gained admittance to the jail, and, after a painful interview, proposed that a petition should be presented direct to the throne. "'Alas!' said Zhou. "'Here am I, bound and guarded like a bird in a cage. "'I have indeed a young brother, "'but it is as much as he can do to provide me with food.' "'Then Chung stepped forward, saying, "'I will perform this service. "'Of what use are friends who will not assist in the hour of trouble?' so away he went, and Joel's brother provided him with money to defray his expenses. After a long journey he arrived at the capital, where he found himself quite at a loss as to how he should get the petition presented. However, hearing that the emperor was about to set out on a hunting tour, he concealed himself in the market-place, and when his majesty passed by, prostrated himself on the ground with loud cries and gesticulations. The Emperor received his petition, and sent it to the Board of Punishments, desiring to be furnished with a report on the case. It was then more than ten months since the beginning of the affair, and Joe, who had been made to confess to this false charge, was already under sentence of death, so that the officers of the board were very much alarmed when they received the imperial instructions, and set to work to rehear the case in person. Huang was also much alarmed, and devised a plan for killing Mr. Zhou by bribing the jailers to stop his food and drink, so that when his brother brought provisions he was rudely thrust back and prevented from taking them in, Mr. Cheng complained of this to the Viceroy of the province, who investigated the matter himself, and found that Zhou was in the last stage of starvation, for which the jailers were bambooed to death. Terrified out of his wits, Huang, by dint of bribing heavily, succeeded in absconding and escaping a just punishment for his crimes. The magistrate, however, was banished for perversion of the law, and Joe was permitted to return home, his affection for Chung being now very much increased. But ever after the prosecution and his friend's captivity, Mr. Chung took a dismal view of human affairs, and one day invited Joe to retire with him from the world. The latter, who was deeply attached to his young wife, threw cold water on the proposition, and Mr. Chung pursued the subject no further, though his own mind was fully made up. Not seeing him for some days afterwards, Mr. Joel sent to inquire after him at his house. But there they all thought he was at Joel's. neither family, in fact, having seen anything of him. This looked suspicious, and Joe, aware of his peculiarity, sent off people to look for him, bidding them search all the temples and monasteries in the neighbourhood. He also from time to time supplied Chung Son with money and other necessaries. Eight or nine years had passed away, when suddenly Chung reappeared, clad in a yellow cap and stole, and wearing the expression of a Taoist priest— Joel was delighted, and seized his arm, saying, "'Where have you been?' letting me search for you all over the place. "'The solitary cloud and the wild crane,' replied "Chung, laughing, "'have no fixed place of abode. "'Since we last met, my equanimity has happily been restored. "'Joel then ordered wine, and they chatted together "'on what had taken place in the interval.' he also tried to persuade chung to detach himself from the taoist persuasion but the latter only smiled and answered nothing it is absurd argued chou why cast aside your wife and child as you would an old pair of shoes not so answered chung if men wish to cast me aside who is there who can do so now chou asked where he lived to which he replied in the great pure mansion on Mount Lao. They then retired to sleep on the same bed, and by and by Joel dreamt that Chung was lying on his chest, so that he could not breathe. In a fright he asked him what he was doing, but got no answer, and then he waked up with a start. Calling to Chung and receiving no reply, he sat up and stretched out his hand to touch him. The latter, however— had vanished he knew not whither when he got calm he found he was lying at chung's end of the bed which rather alarmed him i was not tipsy last night reflected he how could i have got over here he next called his servants and when they came and struck a light lo he was chung now joe had had a beard so he put up his hand to feel for it but found only a few straggling hairs he then seized a mirror to look at himself and cried out in alarm if this is mr Chung, where on earth am i by this time he was wide awake and knew that Chung had employed magic to induce him to retire from the world he was on the point of entering the lady's apartments but his brother not recognizing who he was stopped him and would not let him go in and as he himself was unable to prove his own identity he ordered his horse that he might go in search of Chung. After some day's journey, he arrived at Mount Lao, and as his horse went along at a good rate, the servant could not keep up with him. By and by he rested a while under a tree, and saw a great number of Taoist priests going backwards and forwards, and among them was one who stared fixedly at him. So he inquired of him where he should find Chung whereat the priest laughed, and said, "'I know the name. He is probably in the great pure mansion.' When he had given this answer, he went on his way, Joe following him with his eyes, about a stone's throw, until he saw him speak with someone else, and after saying a few words, proceed onwards as before. The person whom he had spoken with came on to where Joe was, and turned out to be a fellow-townsman of his. He was much surprised at meeting Joe, and said, "'I haven't seen you for some years. They told me you'd gone to Mount Lao to be a Taoist priest. How is it you are still amusing yourself among mortals?' Joe told him who he really was, upon which the other replied, "'Why, I thought the gentleman I just met was you. He has only just left me, and can't have got very far.' Is it possible, cried Joe, that I don't know my own face? Just then the servant came up, and away they went full speed, but could not discover the object of their search. All around them was a vast desert, and they were at a loss whether to go on or to return. But Joe reflected that he had no longer any home to receive him, and determined to carry out his design to the bitter end. But as the road was dangerous for riding, he gave his horse to the servant and bade him to go back. On he went, cautiously by himself, until he spied a boy sitting by the wayside alone. He hurried up to him and asked the boy to direct him where he could find Mr. Chung. "'I am one of his disciples,' replied the lad, and, shouldering Joel's bundle, started off to show the way. They journeyed on together, taking their food by the light of the stars and sleeping in the open air, until, after many miles of road, they arrived in three days at their destination. But this great pure locality was not like that generally spoken of in the world. Though as late as the middle of the tenth moon, there was a great profusion of flowers along the road, quite unlike the beginning of winter, the lad went in, and announced the arrival of a stranger, whereupon Mr. Chung came out, and Joe recognized his own features. Chung grasped his hand and led him inside, where he prepared wine and food, and they began to converse together. Joe noticed many birds of strange plumage, so tame that they were not afraid of him, and these from time to time would alight on the table and sing with voices like panpipes. He was very much astonished at all this, but a love of mundane pleasures had eaten at his soul, and he had no intention of stopping. On the ground were two rush-mats, upon which Chung invited his friend to sit down with him. Then, about midnight, a serene calm stole over him, and while he was dozing off for a moment, he seemed to change places with Chung. Suspecting what had happened... He put his hand up to his chin and found it covered with a beard as before. At dawn, he was anxious to return home, but Chung pressed him to stay. And when three days had gone by, Chung said to him, "I pray you take a little rest now. Tomorrow I will set you on your way." Joel had barely closed his eyelids before he heard Chung calling out, "Everything is ready for starting." So he got up and followed him along a road other than that by which he had come, and in a very short time he saw his home in the distance. In spite of Zhou's entreaties, Chung would not accompany him so far, but made Chou go, waiting himself by the roadside. So the latter went alone, and when he reached his house, knocked at the door. Receiving no answer, he determined to go over the wall, when he found that his body was as light as a leaf, and with one spring he was over. In the same manner he passed several inner walls, until he reached the ladies' apartments, where he saw by the still-burning lamp that the inmates had not yet retired for the night. Hearing people talking within, he licked a hole in the paper window and peeped through, and saw his wife sitting drinking with a most disreputable-looking fellow bursting with rage. His first impulse was to surprise them in the act, but seeing there were two against one, he stole away and let himself out by the entrance gate, hurrying off to Chung, to whom he related what he had seen, and finally begged his assistance. Chung willingly went along with him, and when they reached the room, Joel seized a big stone and hammered loudly at the door. All was then confusion inside, so Joel hammered again upon which the door was barricaded more strongly than before here chung came forward with his sword and burst the door open with a crash joel rushed in and the man inside rushed out but chung was there and with his sword cut his arm right off joel rudely seized his wife and asked what it all meant to which she replied that the man was a friend who sometimes came to take a cup of wine with them. Thereupon Zhou borrowed Chung's sword and cut off her head, hanging up the trunk on a tree in the courtyard. He then went back to Chung. By and by he awaked and found himself on the bed, at which he was somewhat disturbed, and said, I've had a strangely confused dream, which has given me a fright. My brother, replied Cheng smilingly, you look upon dreams as realities, you mistake realities for dreams. Zhou asked what he meant by these words, and then Cheng showed him his sword besmeared with blood. Zhou was terrified and sought to destroy himself, but all at once it occurred to him that Cheng might be deceiving him again. Chung divined his suspicions, and made haste at once to see him home. In a little while they arrived at the village gate, and then Chung said, "'Was it not here, that, sword in hand, I awaited you that night? I cannot look upon the unclean spot. I pray you go on and let me stay here. If you do not return by the afternoon, I will depart alone.' Joel then approached his house, which he found all shut up, as if no one was living there. So he went into his brothers. The latter, when he beheld Joel, began to weep bitterly, saying, "'After your departure thieves broke into the house and killed my sister-in-law, hanging her body upon a tree. Alas, alas, the murderers have not yet been caught!' Joe then told him the whole story of his dream, and begged him to stop further proceedings, at all of which his brother was perfectly lost in astonishment. Joe then asked after his son, and his brother told the nurse to bring him in, whereupon the former said, "'Upon this infant are centred the hopes of our race. Tend him well, for I am going to bid adieu to the world.' He then took his leave, his brother following him all the time with tears in his eyes to induce him to remain, but he heeded him not. And when they reached the village gate, his brother saw him go away with Chung. From afar he looked back and said, "'Forbear, and be happy.' His brother would have replied, but here Chung whisked his sleeve, and they disappeared." The brother remained there for some time, and then went back, overwhelmed with grief. He was an unpractical man, and before many years were over, all the property was gone and the family reduced to poverty. Joe's son, who was growing up, was thus unable to secure the services of a tutor, and had no one but his uncle to teach him. One morning, on going into the schoolroom, the uncle found a letter lying on the desk addressed to himself in his brother's handwriting. There was, however, nothing in it but a fingernail about four inches in length. Surprised at this, he laid the nail down in the ink slab while he went out to ask whence this letter had come. This no one knew, but when he went back he found that the inkstone had been changed into a piece of shining yellow gold, more than ever astonished, he tried the nail on copper and iron things, all of which were likewise turned to gold. He thus became very rich, sharing his wealth with Chung's son, and it was bruited about that the two families possessed the secret of transmutation. Footnotes One, Chung did not seek to be introduced. This is a characteristic touch. Only the most intimate of friends ever see each other's wives. 2. The inner apartments, where the women of the family live and into which no stranger ever penetrates. Among other names by which a Chinese husband speaks of his wife, a very common one is the inner woman. 3. The higher authorities were petitioned to deprive him of his status as a graduate, until which he would be safe, by virtue of his degree, from the degrading penalty of the bamboo. 4. The magistrate then had him most unmercifully bambooed. This is the instrument commonly used for flogging criminals in China, and consists of a strip of split bamboo, planed down smooth, Strictly speaking, there are two kinds, the heavy and the light. The former is now hardly ever used. Until the reign of kung Si, all strokes were given across the back, but that humane emperor removed the locus operandi further down, for fear of injuring the liver or the lungs. 5. The Board of Punishments one of the six boards, now seven, at the capital, equivalent to our own War Office, Board of Works, etc. 6. Made to confess to this false charge. It is a principle of Chinese jurisprudence that no sentence can be passed until the prisoner has confessed his guilt. A principle, however, frequently set aside in practice. 7. Paper Window. Wooden frames, covered with a semi-transparent paper, are used all over the northern provinces of China. In the south, oyster-shells, cut square and planed down thin, are inserted, tile-fashion, in the long narrow spaces of a wooden frame made to receive them, and used for the same purpose. But glass is gradually finding its way into the houses of the well-to-do, and large quantities being made at Canton and exported to various parts of the empire. 8. SWORD. Every Taoist priest has a magic sword corresponding to our magician's wand. 9. CUT OFF HER HEAD. In China a man has the right to slay his adulterous wife, but he must slay her paramour also, both or neither otherwise he lays himself open to a prosecution for murder. The act completed, he is further bound to proceed at once to the magistrate of the district and report what he has done. 10. Upon this infant are centred the hopes of our race. The importance of male offspring in Chinese social life is hardly to be expressed in words. To the son is confided the task of worshipping at the ancestral tombs, the care of the ancestral tablets, and the due performance of all rites and ceremonies connected with the departed dead. No Chinaman will die if he can help it, without leaving a son behind him. If his wife is childless, he will buy a concubine, and we are told on page 41, volume 8 of the Jai, that a good wife... Who at thirty years of age has not borne a child should forthwith pawn her jewellery and purchase a concubine for her husband for to be without a son is hard indeed another and a common resource is to adopt a nephew and sometimes a boy is bought from starving parents or from a professional kidnapper should a little boy die no matter how young his parents do not permit even him to be without the good offices of a son. They adopt some other child on his behalf, and when the boy grows up, it becomes his duty to perform the proper ceremonies at his baby father's tomb. Girls do not enjoy the luxury of this sham posterity. They are quietly buried in a hole near the family vault, and their disembodied spirits are left to wander about in the realms below, uncared for and unappeased it must not be inferred however from this that the position of women in china is low as such is far from being the case every mother shares in the ancestral worship and her name is recorded on the tombstone side by side with that of her husband hence it is that chinese tombstones are always to the memory either of a father or of a mother or of both with occasionally the addition of the grandfather and grandmother, and sometimes even that of the generation preceding. 11. The secret of transmutation. The belief that a knowledge of alchemy is obtainable by leading the life of a pure and perfect Taoist is one of the numerous additions in later ages to this ancient form of religion. End of Joining the Immortals